for it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that may have just been the intro right there. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know when you take a sip of water and it doesn't go down right? I yep. was just trying to get through the intro without coughing that. Anyway, I screwed it up. Anyway, welcome <laughs> back to Short Hops and Tall Tales. We're, we're going to just, we're going to do it live. A pictureless podcast highlighting the weird, funny, and bizarre elements of baseball that make America's pastime special. I'm Noah Scott, once again joined by the amazing Brandon Riddle. And we are, again, super excited to bring you some more super weird baseball. Uh, and I think super weird baseball is a very apt name for our discussions going on tonight. What do you What do you think, Brandon? Uh, yeah, I, I think most of the time, super weird describes this podcast pretty well. Um, so, yeah, we're going to continue that trend with more weird baseball here. Um, so, for example, we're going to lead off with a story about baseball mud. Uh, we always mud. hear about... Yeah, we always hear about stuff being rubbed on baseballs. What is it? Where they come from? What's the kind of backstory there? I'm assuming that's a story. I haven't read the outline yet, but I'm going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we have a story about Pinky and the Bubbles. See what's going on there. And, and then the course we're going to ask some trivia sprinkled out in here and there. So it's going to be a good time. Yeah, sounds good for uh, to me. So we're going to start it off, uh, like you said, with some trivia. Uh, you want to, I, I don't know. Do you know the answer to this? I, do not, I, I know no. you wrote the question. Okay. So why don't you, you read the question. We'll okay. both, both go for it. So uh, the question leading off here is uh, who is the only pitcher in baseball history, major league baseball history with a perfect game an immaculate inning and a four strikeout inning. Uh, f- a four strikeout inning, four strikeout inning and an immaculate inning. So uh, nine pitches, all strikes. They all strike out, See, which, is in, which is increasingly rare, by the way. It's far rarer than the perfect game. But we did have I feel one. Like, I feel year. like I feel like you could definitely because I feel like the list of guys who have struck out four four batters in an inning, like that's just such a it's going to be pretty random, right? So like mm-hmm. there, there's some that are skill based here, but some you've also got to benefit from. Yeah, chance right when your your catcher just lets the guy. I mean, really, all of those. There's so much chance in there. Like, yeah, you need a certain amount of skill for a perfect game, uh, but then you'll have those random perfect, perfect games thrown in there as well. Immaculate inning and a four strikeout inning. I have so names that come to mind is of course like Nolan Ryan and Randy Johnson because you know they have yeah. plenty of opportunities for that. Yeah, I was so. Hmm. Yeah, because I want to say like, oh yeah, Sandy Koufax, because he threw a perfect game. I'm sure he's thrown an immaculate inning. Four strikeout inning, I'm not, I know Don Drysdale did that one time. I'm not sure if Koufax right. did. I, I uh, just looked it up. Can okay, I well, Can I give no. you a hint? Okay, yeah, you can give me a hint. That's 21st century pitcher. 21st, was it Felix? Yeah, you got it. It was Felix, it man. Was Felix? Yeah. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> that's cool. Okay. Well, yeah, that when, was kind of cool. I had no idea. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he got an immaculate inning June 17, 2008. The four strikeout inning came in 2010. And, of course, perfect game in 2012. That's cool. I always yeah. like talking about Felix. Good for him. I love Felix. I feel like, I feel like we, we somewhat often bring up like random Mariners players more than, I think, other teams. But, you know, but it's just like, ah, oh, this guy was great. You know, like. You know, of all the teams that just have random players on them, yeah. it's, it's going to be the Mariners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
as Brandon briefly touched on at the top of the episode, uh, our weird, odd baseball story for today, we're actually going to talk about something that's, uh, I mean, it's it's something of a lesser known uh, aspect of baseball and baseball history that is super, super weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> to say the least. Like, I'm just, I'm, I'm cracking up just thinking about this in just the greater context of baseball history. It's, it's great. It's so, it's so baseball. And so we're talking about baseball mud. And so you might be listening to this just completely unaware. Maybe you're not super into baseball and you're just thinking like, he say mud yeah like, yeah like, like the infield has dirt on it so maybe you spray it down and it gets muddy yeah. to slow down certain runners i don't know well okay it's not used <laughs> exactly like that but <laughs> but yeah so each year uh you know mlb uses this special magical kind of mud it's harvest it's harvestable from only one place on earth and they use it to treat uh around two hundred and forty thousand baseballs over the course of a season oh, so that 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 one place, uh, me, was that uh, Mississippi or Kentucky? Where is that at? It's around there. It's okay, general. <laughs> it's, it's, it's around the area. Okay, it's, it's in America. Uh, but it's it's so. What's great about this story, though, before we really get into the the grimy details, is that Major League Baseball, as we know it today, is this this huge analytical multi billion dollar industry that would be essentially brought to a grinding halt if not for this one small like family run secret in that's this baseball mud right and so just for context i know we've had a lot of discussion about uh foreign substances in baseball and pine tar and and all this and this kind of ties in with that because for years major league baseball has been trying to work with companies like rawlings to develop a baseball that uh you know has grip without substance right uh, and that's also in part because they just don't want to keep running through this very small company for for this <laughs> magical mud that they have to buy every year. Like it's this this Can't completely them, yeah. like like out of context. It's this hilarious bottleneck, right? You've got this this. I mean, in context too, it's funny. But you've got this this multi billion dollar organization, right? And then just this small company that does about $20,000 yeah, in, in profit a year. Just in, in my mind, it's like your, your old granddad down the road just on a chair, you know, slapping mud on some baseball, say, here you go. And that's how a game is played. In my mind, that's how it works. That's that. That's actually, you nailed it. That's it's just this one guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I'm not going to lie. That's not super far off but let's let's get into it a little bit here so like i said each year they use this mud to treat over two hundred and forty thousand baseballs give or take over the course of a season so this is due to a small but important line in mlb's official rule book uh, rule 4.01 c which states that all baseballs shall be properly rubbed so that the gloss is removed like the shine right you know when you get a new brand new ball uh them pearls kind of right it's it's shiny so where does it, where did this come from though? Like, cause that's out of context, a very odd, you've got, you've got to have a rule to rub the baseballs down. Like it's, it's a very it weird sounds thing. Nice. That, it's like, what's the, the baseballs. What, okay. Well, what's the, <laughs> but, but what's the, the historical precedent is like what I get to start thinking about. Right. Cause that's just an odd thing to have a rule for that. You've got to like massage these balls. And so it actually stems all the way. It dates all the way back to 1920 and it dates back to this dark uh, incident that we've actually talked about uh, in passing a few times before on the show. And that's the death of Ray Chapman, the uh, Cleveland shortstop. Uh, so in 1920, 
uh, around that time, baseball games, you really only used one or two balls over the course of the entire game. So as the game would you know, wear on, the ball would become lumpy and scuffed and torn and pitchers would cut it up with their wedding rings and, I don't know, sneak like a like a cheese grater into their back pocket. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, that happens. You're not, yeah, you're, you're not wrong. You know, like, like, but essentially they would mangle and tear up these baseballs and they would soak them in all t- kinds of like grotesque stuff. They like spit tobacco, tobacco juice, in juice. Them and, yeah. and throw, throw it on the ground, you know, just really abuse. Even, even catchers got into the action too. Sometimes the pitches are being checked with substances or he's scuffing up the ball. The catcher would catch it, scuff it up themselves and yeah. throw it back to the pitcher. So the pitcher would be in the clean. Yeah, uh, but it's it's funny, though, because it's over the course of the game, this ball would <laughs> turn into this lumpy, just gross tobacco logged just piece of garbage. Right. And it becomes su- became super hard to see because, you know, you get all this juice in there, all these different substances, <laughs> all this dirt. It would become like muddy and brown and dark. And so it all came to a head in 1920 when Ray Chapman, the Cleveland shortstop, he actually gets hit in the the head by a pitch from the Yankees' Carl Mays. Now, once again, this is back when they they didn't wear helmets at this time either. Uh, And so it was a late afternoon game. The shadows were really going deep. And this pitcher, Carl Mays, he threw submarine style. So he hits Chapman in the head. Onlookers said that he didn't even move when the pitch came. He probably didn't even see it. Uh, like I said, because it's dark, the ball's torn up. It's hard to see. And, you know, guys throwing, throwing yeah. uh, underarmed. Uh, so after this is incident, when Ray Chapman, unfortunately, became the first uh, player to die on a baseball field uh, or, you know, from the result of baseball related mm-hmm. injuries like that. Uh, MLB want to tighten things up and they want to improve player safety. You know, it's a natural response. So they actually looked for a substance that could help these pitchers get a grip on the ball without damaging or dirtying the ball to the point where it would become hard to see and become dangerous. Uh, they tried pretty much everything like shoe polish. They rubbed on there all sorts of like weird pace and huh. anything. It's, it's the 1920s. They probably rubbed like, you know, relish on there or like some deli mustard. I don't know. They, they yeah, tried fair everything essentially and nothing was working enter you know uh enter the 1930s and the philadelphia athletics coach lena blackburn so this guy was a coach for the the a's in the 30s and he finds the perfect solution to mlb's uh ball crisis and so he he was taking a walk down by a by the river down near his home in palmyra new jersey and he's on the new jersey side of the delaware river and he finds this mud down there uh, that had this really smooth, almost kind of like creamy consistency. <laughs> I love this. Keep and, going. <laughs> and so, so this mud, uh, I've, I've seen it described. It's kind of like, like chocolate pudding. It's like real dark and it's, that's the consistency of the mud. And I, I like that they went with pudding instead of the other obvious comparison. All right. But <laughs> <laughs> So essentially, Lena Blackburn, uh, this coach, he finds the mud and he realizes, you know, like, hey, just like stick a finger of this mud on a ball and, you know, rub it together and you can really it it works really well. Right. So he takes that back to his team, takes it back to the athletics and it was a hit. You know, soon everyone wanted it. Uh, Teams around the American League, he was he was soon supplying pretty much the entire American League. Uh, A little later, he did the senior circuit in the National League as well. And so essentially, he goes from being a baseball man to suddenly you're in the mud business. (laughs) And 
<laughs> which I think is like Jane. <laughs> it's like this would be a great a great film about this guy. And so he suddenly he's, he's a mud monger, and he, so he he partners with his childhood friend from New Jersey, this guy John Haas. And so they end up making a, you know, like a supply chain out of the whole thing. So they end up going down to this remote stretch of the river uh, where he originally found the mud and they started harvesting. Now, supposedly this is where it gets, this is, this is really Mm -hmm. hilarious. So supposedly there's only a one mile stretch where the conditions are perfect enough to harvest the mud that is, you know, high quality enough to use on major league baseballs. And so it's it's like this only this this whole like mythos of it's like it's the only pers- place in the world where you can get this mud is is in New Jersey, right? And it's just like you think it'd be some place that's like, ooh, oh, like, I'm sure it's just the or... one area where Blackburn's found. Like he hasn't driven around the country. It's just like between his house and the ballpark. Saying- this is the spot that's about right. And yeah, this is saying- where it comes from. Yep. <laughs> you're saying this this blackburn guy was like oh this, this couldn't possibly find this anywhere but my backyard in in new jersey <laughs> but but i would Best pay in the world i would pay good money to see a montage of blackburn and like a like a 1980s montage with that you know the good music behind him going around the world and checking the consistency of mud well, during the rainy seasons i would love that yeah i mean i, I just I, I just love this story right and so uh, he actually this just this whole mythology around this small little stretch of the Delaware River. Uh, it, it's great. So the person in charge of the operation today, uh, his name is Jim Bintliff, and he said that when he's out there harvesting, people will run into him and they'll ask him like, "Dude, what are you doing with all this mud?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm I work for the EPA. Like I, I investigate pollution, <laughs> or I'm using it. It's actually great to use on my my plants at home. You know, it helps them grow. And so he'll tell them that, so because he wants to keep it a secret, and they won't tell anybody about where exactly they, they find the mud. Uh, they they you know they keep it it hidden. And so it's great because MLB wants they need this way around them, but this this." very small company this very small operation they're the <laughs> the bottleneck like mlb has all of this money and they're being held up because only these people know where to get the special mud right i uh, <laughs> i honestly wonder if major league baseball is just you know just been okay with this like let's keep it going or if they've actually tried to create a similar consistency with a different type of mud in a different state they can get the hands on it's well, kind of interesting that is that is a good question because the thing that interests me about this is I did some research and it turns out that this company, uh, the Magic Mud Company, they only make they only take in about twenty grand a year, right? Uh, the the guy who runs it now, Jim Bintliff, he also works as a like a full time printing press operator. So it's not like this. They're wait, they're wait, not wait. they're not gouging wait. MLB, which is wait, what's I, really I, interesting to me. I, I also want to point out that he has two jobs. One of which is putting mud on baseballs. The other which is a printing press operator. I love this yes. person. He yes. he is my hero, and I think Dude. he belongs to the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to like add this guy on LinkedIn. Hi <laughs> right, guys, oh, I'm doing that. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is no, it's it's I, I did actually have the same reaction when I read that. I was like, of course, he, he's a printing press operator. That's that's <laughs> awesome. Kudos. Hats off to this guy. Uh, yeah. And so I guess when when they it's like this whole deal where uh, this guy, Jim Bintliff, like he will go out and harvest about a thousand a thousand pounds of this mud in his garage every winter. Wow. And he bought, you know, he'll he'll pack it up and send it out to MLB. 
Uh, and it's like, can you imagine like a thousand pounds of mud in your garage and he just harvests it all with like a shovel and some buckets, right? <laughs> like it's this very, is, it's very hands on. Oh, this is all so fascinating. I love this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like once it's harvested, right, he brings it back to his house and he puts it all through a strainer and essentially he cleans the mud, gets all of the oh, little, like, gross that's the little special ingredients in there. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all the like gross, like, del- you know, water mud runoff i don't know whatever's sure. in there uh, but he strains it right and he mixes it with some water before draining it uh to, to clean it out and then i guess you just take a little little fingerprint of it right and a little bit of water and it's like perfect to rub down all the baseballs huh. it doesn't really leave any residue behind it's all kind of like ev- it's all very even and, and spreads out it is this this like really special mud like um but uh it so it's it's really interesting though because the family aspect of the company it kind of it's continued to parallel baseball in a sense like it's you know the magic mud company it's still the same small group of people uh the the guy who owns it now jim bintliff he actually inherited it from his father who was uh his name was burns bintliff and he was the son-in-law of john haas which was the partner of lena blackburn who inherited the company after blackburn died in 1968 so it's there's like a very there's like a thorough line, you know, from then to here, which is really cool that, you know, alongside baseball. I, I love this so much. This, this may be my favorite baseball thing, honestly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, it's, it's, it's great because MLB, like they have tried. And I mean, this has been a recurring conversation that we've had even today is, is can, how can we get pitchers more grip on baseballs without, Mm-hmm. uh you know making making it unbalanced right uh without dirtying the ball making it hard to see and this is a problem mlb's been trying to get around and trying to research their way out of for about a century now and <laughs> like they've worked with rawlings they've done all this like research and stuff and they haven't found anything that that works better than this small small little uh stretch of the delaware river <laughs> what which of course, Major League Baseball isn't the only league in the league in the world. So I'm assuming that these other leagues out there, they're not using this tiny stretch of land for mud. They have other, you know, things that work for them. Like that I know, a, it, do other yeah, sports so, rub down balls like that? Uh, yeah, the leagues. So I know Japan; they have their own uh, specialty rub that they use, and the oh, pitchers over okay. there love it. Yeah, 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 just something like that. Cool. So yeah, yeah, I would, you know, if this mud, you know, is isn't quite working there are other leagues we can go look at as well. And I know, yeah. I know some players have brought that up that pitched over there and they came back over here and have commented, you know, uh, the, the rub they use for the baseballs there is great. We should just bring that here. It's the thing that before we move on, it's just so weird to me that it's still such a, a small, like it's just a two person company. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's Jim Bintliff. And then his, his wife does like the, takes the orders. Uh, but it's, it's so weird to me that it's such a small company and major league baseball is pretty much just like, they just depended on them and and they don't like they don't take a ton a ton of money from from no, MLB. And, like they I don't know, make a ton off of this it, it looks like yeah there was a similar husband and wife um team that did something like this for scheduling for the longest time right, for baseball exactly. i think up until very recently uh where the scheduling was just ha- handled by this uh you know this, this man and wife just hanging out in the garage, putting the schedules together for all the teams, judging, you know, by the travel, what works best between you know, all the other teams, what makes it kind of balanced. And there's just two people doing it. Yeah. It, it, it just, I think that's really interesting and we can, we can do a little 
profile on on the scheduling people because that's that's also really cool and so yeah maybe it's just because it's it's like a a historical traditional thing Uh, because i just can't imagine like specifically like it seems like a lot of physical work to only take in about 20 grand you know like that's true yeah because every how many baseballs a year do we use did you mention that um they do about i i did i didn't mention uh, 240,000 baseballs a year mlb so how much time is that that's so much time you're right right. i i I feel that's the full-time job that maybe 20,000 they don't they don't don't treat it themselves the baseball oh they they just get the mud no no, they they harvest the mud and they send the mud out to the teams and then the clubhouse managers that's right rub down the baseballs that's right yeah yeah so that oh man can you imagine that if if one person had touched every single baseball it'd be kind of cool though <laughs> all right so that that's baseball mud one of the really weird and kind of out there and honestly a really cool cool thing that's still going on today uh in in baseball so baseball no, that, mud that's honestly one of not my favorite story that yeah. we and you have done here it's it's not it's a so traditional cool. baseball story but it is very much a a baseball story yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so so now, uh, Brandon, I'm going to turn it over to you for what is entitled Pinky in the Bubbles. I don't know what this is about, but I'm just scanning. This looks <laughs> looks like a trip. So, Brandon, uh, why don't you kick things off? Yeah, so uh, Pinky and the Bubbles, to kind of change that from the mud stories here. Uh, I'm thinking this like is... Pinky and the Brain. Is that like where we're going yeah, here? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was my playoff here, Pinky and the Brain, okay. Pinky and the Bubbles. These are two different nicknames. I uh, see Pinky and Bubbles uh, were brothers. And in Major League Baseball history, we've had 431 sets of brothers to play in, in the MLB. Um, off the top of your head, what, what kind of brothers can you name? Alomars. Alomars, yep. Um, I think of the Alou brothers. All, all, you know. I'm, I'm not going to lie. The first name that jumped to my mouth was, I was about to go, Griffies. I was like, wait, no. <laughs> No, wait, yeah, kind of, kind of like <laughs> well, that. That's not it. <laughs> yeah, you got the Griffies and you got the Bonzes. Oh wait, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, so I think like, uh, Molina. No kidding, Molinas. You had three DiMaggio's play. Yeah, yeah. Uptons today, um, and obviously a whole lot more. Uh, but but as you know, listening to the podcast, we love our baseball names. Uh, so f- when you look at the set of brothers, you of course have Dizzy and Daffy Dean, A plus baseball names there. Uh, but in my mind, the most underrated pair of brother names has to go to Bubbles and Pinky Hargrave. Just because they're called Bubbles and Pinky. I love that so much. Um, Bubbles so got, and Pinky? Bubbles and Pinky. Yeah. And what are the odds of those they two sound brothers? like cartoon characters. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but some people, some fans out there, um, they're probably looking at us like, of course, Bubble, it, Bubbles is a... A, a player that we all love because turns out he was a really good player for the Cincinnati Reds. And we'll talk about that. Uh, so first of all, because of course, Pinky and Bubbles were, uh, they were born to a Civil War vet- veteran. Uh, Bubbles was in 1892, Pinky 1896, I believe. So, 1895. They're, so they're old. Yeah, these are old timers have played in the I 20s mean, I and guess 30s. You can, you can guess from their nicknames, but okay. Although I, I would love a Bubbles nickname in today's game. We need, we need better nicknames, guys. Um, but anyway, when Bubbles was first growing up, uh, the dad didn't like the idea of his sons becoming professional baseball players, and Bubbles was all about the game. Uh, so his his dad forced uh, Bubbles to go into the furniture business, 
but as Bubble Slave okay. has said, right, of course, um, I didn't like it because there was too much dust. So it's, it's a little too dusty for Bubble. That's fair. That, that's it a is, fair absolutely. criticism. No, I get that. <laughs> so he continued to play baseball. To where in 1911, he joined the Terry Hotten Miners, sure, as a catcher. And he played pretty well as a teenager. He was 18 years old for that season. And he played well enough that the Chicago Cubs bought um, his contract for the 1912 season. Uh, now, of course, he was a catcher. And he was pretty decent defensively. Not great, but he, he was all right back there. Uh, but he did stay as a third-string catcher for the first two seasons. Uh, so for this two years, he only started 38 games. He didn't get into many games at all. Um, I, I like to think that that's really how you develop talent in the 1912 season. You just don't play anyone. Um, yeah. I. <laughs> yeah. We've commented before, uh, but in those days, players, managers really didn't care for rookies too much. I can't imagine if you're 19 years old being a rookie, how they treated you there. So it's probably some of that going on, too. Uh, but in any case, uh, Bubbles was so sold off to the American Association, a different league, and then he bounced around a few different teams out there. Uh, but for a couple of years, he played fine. But in 1920, something just absolutely clicked as he played for the St. Paul Saints, uh, which is a very clever nickname. Uh, he hit 335 with 22 home runs. And this is still pretty much the dead ball era. 22 home runs. That's insane. Uh, so as you can imagine, uh, that kind of season caught the interest of Major League Baseball and then came knocking at Cincinnati Reds. Uh, they bought bubbles for, I think it was $10,000, which is still a, a pretty good sum, especially back then. And then this year, 1920, is when he earned the nickname of Bubbles. So I, I, off the top of your head, how do you think somebody earns the nickname Bubbles in 1920? I think that whenever... Bubbles went out to a restaurant with his teammates. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got a he got a his his beverage, and I'm not even sure if straws had been invented at this point in <laughs> in in 1920. But I'm gonna say that he took his straw and he blew bubbles in his drink, and that's why he actually never played was because he irritated oh. all of the veterans so much because he would just slurp and blow bubbles in his drink like a like a five year old. Uh, so that's that's why he was just shunned from that from yeah that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's no, why they I'm, called him Bubbles too. I'm on board with that. Yep. Um, we don't really know why he was called Bubbles. Uh, there's a few popular oh. ideas. Uh, the leading theories, of course, that he brought his own personal straw to restaurants and blew bubbles in his milk. I assume I don't know what he drank in 1920. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was another thought. Maybe he liked champagne, so they called him Bubbles, <laughs> right? Uh, but okay. the most common one is actually that he uh, stuttered when pronouncing B words. So as just pure mockery, his teammates, of course, called him Bubbles. What? So that when he introduced himself, he would have to stutter over his own name, which is that's just brutal. overall. That is just guys, ruthless. That's <laughs> absolutely ruthless. Yeah. But uh, whatever the case, Bubbles, you know, stuck around and he hit the ball. Um, over that first season, he hit 285, which for a catcher, even then, is a solid time. Yeah, it's great. And then the uh, Cincinnati Inquirer, uh, looking at his skill sets and playing behind the dish, uh, they said of the new catcher that he was powerful and had an accurate arm and is a bulwark. I don't know what that means. And blocking runners at the plates. Bulwark. Um, context clues, but sure. Words. <laughs> yeah, there they said that no one's going to slide around him or past him when he has the ball in his hands. So he was apparently just a big force behind the plates. Cool. 
but he wasn't known mo- mostly for his defensive work. He was actually a great hitter because from 1922 to 27, he hit over 300 every single year. Again, as a catcher in the 1920s, that's intense. Yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah. And uh, one of the highlights came in the 1926 season. Uh, this was the night before opening day. And he started feeling ill and it got so bad he had to go to the hospital. Of, and there the doctor said, you know, he had an appendicitis. We got to do surgery <laughs> uh, right before the season began. Uh, uh, but then they got the blood work that will check everything and decided, okay, you don't actually need surgery, but let's drastically change your diet until the pain goes away. <laughs> so, yeah, that's exactly what they did. He survived mostly on a liquid diet for a couple of weeks there, uh, buttermilk mostly. And he lost 14 pounds in the process, which is an intense <laughs> amount of weight to lose in such a short amount of time, especially yeah, right? for a professional athlete. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrifying. <laughs> but I guess just by drinking buttermilk for his substance set year, um, he said that it, it improved his vision. So, hey, and there may have been something to it because that year he ended up winning the battle batting title by hitting 353. Okay. So, I mean, if it if it works for everyone has everyone has a different off season. That's uh, true. Build up in strategy. You some know, people you come do what's in, right for you. Yeah. Some people come in in the best shape of the lives. Um, others come in needing appendicitis and losing fourteen pounds because right. they drink a lot of buttermilk. Whatever but works, hit 353. guys. Hit three fifty three. Um, and there's actually some kind of fun trivia with his batting title because number one, uh, it snapped a six year winning streak by Rogers Hornsby. Uh, two. <laughs> Yeah. This was the first batting title won by a catcher since it was intru- since the batting title was introduced. Oh, cool. And there were no actual rules for how many at-bats were needed to qualify for the batting title, uh, which led to his teammate, Rube Bressler, actually hitting 356, three points better uh, than Bubbles, but not winning the title because uh, he had um, only, you know, uh, I think it was like 150 at-bats to his name. Uh, and the winner of the batting title wasn't announced until December because the league wasn't sure how to actually rectify this idea. How many at-bats do you need? Uh, how many games do you need to play? You know, today we have 3.1 at-bats mm-hmm. uh, per game to register for the batting title. But that didn't show up for another couple of decades afterwards. So it wasn't until December that Bubbles was told, hey, you are the best hitter in the league this year. Good job, kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of wild it took so long to, to announce. Yeah, all the way to December. So, you know, newspapers had a pretty good time with that one. Uh, but during that stretch from 22 to 27, where he was consistently over 300, he got MVP votes in three of those seasons. And then in that span of time uh, with this, the Reds, he hit 314, had himself 27 stolen bases, which is kind of cool for a catcher. And one of my favorite stats, OPS Plus, his was 122, which again is impressive, especially for a catcher. And then he only struck out 147 times. Okay. You know, over 766 games, you just strike out 147 times. Great job. Yeah, like that's that he's he's a great hitting catcher. And and Absolutely. that's at a yeah. time when catchers really weren't weren't expected to be offensive. No, and even today you can't expect that just because of yeah. you know the little beating they took, and especially because in the 1920s, you know, the catcher's mask and chest protector was still new. Right. <laughs> so they still right. took quite the beating. Uh, but, you know, playing, you know, appendicitis, he's broke his hand at one point. He had a lot of different injuries. So come 1929, uh, the Reds, you know, declined his contract and he took the year off. 
until he was picked up by the Yankees the next year. Uh, but he was 37 years old and only gotten 45 games. Um, so that was the end of it for Major League Baseball. But then he bounced around between different leagues and teams, um, ending his career as a player manager, ultimately stepping down because he was in a terrible dry spill as a batter. And uh-huh. the manager, and him as a manager goes, you know what? I can't play me anymore. I'm out. <laughs> so, so good for him. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So Bubbles ultimately a really good catcher. And I'm going to throw something out there that I'm not sure if you're going to agree with. Okay. But catcher, uh, the position catcher has the second fewest Hall of Famers in baseball uh, besides third base. And I think that's because they're judged obviously the same as like a center fielder or a left fielder uh, when their skill sets and durability are far different. So yeah. I'd almost suggest that Bubbles maybe should be taken a look at for the Hall of Fame, given his eight-year stretch with the Reds where he did a great job and because catcher is just a difficult position to evaluate. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to disagree. I, I don't know if, if you, you want me to take a, a contrarian opinion just to have something to argue about. But no, I, oh, I no, think you're, you're right. Because, I mean, if you look at the how the Hall of Fame is divided up by position, there's only 19 catchers. Uh, funny enough, there's more catchers than third basemen. Oh, I was wrong. Uh, My mistake. But <clears throat> there's only 19 catchers because it's it's a very high it's become a very high bar to be inducted as a catcher into the Hall of Fame. Like, look at Joe Maurer. Joe Maurer should 100 percent be oh, in the Hall of Fame. 100 percent. Like, like, like he was the best in the game at his position for a very long time and by a lot. And he's we don't know. You know, it's it's there's been discussions that he's on the bubble, you know, like. Mike Piazza uh, got in a couple of years ago and he was uh-huh. the first catcher in I don't know how long to be in a good long so time, I do think, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that we one hundred percent need more catchers in the Hall of Fame. And I think that I mean he this this uh this was bub- bubbles, not pinky, but I think bubbles really you know, from from what you laid out, like he he seems like he was a very very more than productive player, like a very strong mm-hmm. player, both offensive and defensively from you know, every everything. So, yeah, I, I think that a catcher at that time who has like a stretch of eight years and multiple seasons where he's in the MB, MVP discussion. Yeah, I, I think he deserves at least a sec. Give him a second look. Right. Like yeah, talk absolutely. about him, bring him up with the veterans committee, you know? Yeah, and I, I think catchers in the Hall of Fame is something else we should talk about another episode. But for now, Bubbles, you know, maybe give yourselves another thought. I'm sure Reds fans know about him because he had a great stretch there for the team. Right. All right, and that brings us um, for a little bit over to Pinky, his brother. Pinky, all right. Pinky, and of course, the name Pinky, he was, of course, the little brother, because you can't have a name Pinky and be the big brother. That's just how it goes. <laughs> um, but again, he was born in 1895, so still pretty early on like that. Uh, but unlike Bubbles, um, he, he had an easier time getting into baseball as a child because he was reportedly his mother's favorite child. And so instead of the dad... <laughs> pressing on this furniture business, upholstery business onto Pinky. His mother was like, no, he, he loves the game. Let him go play. And the dad, being the wise man he was, didn't argue with his wife. So, I also uh, just kind of like the idea that Bubbles was like, I really don't want to have to work in upholstery for my life. So, you know, I'm gonna, I have to be a, be a baseball player. Like, I have yeah. to make it. <laughs> like, this has got to happen. Absolutely. <laughs> Please. <laughs> and I want to take over the business. And I'm going to take the toughest position just to prove a point. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so uh, Pinky had an easier time getting into baseball, and 
actually his nickname comes from a childhood name. Uh, he, of course, had red hair, as you can imagine, and a, a reddish nose to him. So people just gave him the name Pinky. There we go. And uh, as a baseball player, he had kind of an interesting evolution to him. So he started off as a right-handed batter. And then he became a switch hitter at the suggestion of George Sisler, who at the time, you know, all-time hits leader. And then later on became a full-time lefty. So he had the full gamut of, you know, batter experience in the batter's box. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He again had a solid career overall. And his best season was definitely in 1929. Uh, That was the same year that his brother kind of fell out of the baseball. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if there's, you know, those reasons overlap with each other. But hey. <laughs> so uh, at this point, he switched to a heavier bat in his career, and he opened up a stance because uh, he said he likes seeing uh, his belt kind of shine in the eyes of the pitcher, which I'm sure that didn't happen. But all right, all right you can see the ball easier, sure. Uh, so in the month of August alone, he hit 437 and went five for five on the final game of the month. So that's an absolute tear of a month. And he ended the season hitting over, th- uh, not over, but exactly 330, which is a good, solid number. That's great. Yeah. So g- good year for Pinky. Um, great year, actually, especially because he was still a catcher at this point. Um, and he bounced around a little bit. Again, that was a highlight of his career, certainly. Um, 280s, 270s after that. And he ended up finishing again in the American Association, uh, where he hit 356 for the Minneapolis uh, Millers. <laughs> Man, 356 wow. for the final season. That is a way to yeah. go out. Uh-huh. So he knew he could still play, but he decided to hang him up uh, and stay close to baseball the rest of his life. Again, did some managing as well. And uh, ultimately, he he passed away on the baseball diamond in a heart attack. He was doing some field maintenance and just uh, collapsed on the field. So I guess doing what you love, that's I guess that's the way to go out. Um, so yeah, yeah, 1941 for Pinky. <laughs> I don't know. If, uh, yeah, that's one way to describe describe a heart attack on a baseball you know, I, I was you know, bring, bringing a cheer to it. Hey, you know what? No, doing no, no, doing was, what was you very, love might as well touching, be there. A very touching uh, ending. Uh, wow, <laughs> Pinky, Pinky and Bubbles. Couple, couple. I had never heard of this this duo of no. brothers. That's that's pretty cool. And I like how I like how even though Bubbles was the clearly the better of the two that pinky still had his his moments to shine and i do think it was oh, yeah. funny that his best year was the year his brother the year his brother went out now watch me become the better brother here i'm, yeah. I'm assuming that's what they sound like yeah i mean it's, it's the 20s that's, that's it's what the 20s. everyone they're, they're all kind like. of gangster movies and yeah. c movies yeah exactly yeah all right all right so uh speaking of brothers i have one last okay. trivia for you here wrap it up with some trivia absolutely so which pair of hall of fame brothers have the most hits for two siblings. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, 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 I feel like I'd be, when we listed out all the brothers that we could that that we could think of earlier, I feel like you listed so many more than I did. Um, <laughs> well, okay, okay, so I I did not get the top pair. So the top pair combined have 5,611 hits. And by the way, I'm not counting uh, like three brothers or four brothers in the league. This is just the top two. So you okay. can take the two. So uh, so those two, I wouldn't have got this one. Let's go and let you know. Paul and Lloyd Wayner got themselves oh. nearly 6,000 hits between the two of them. Okay. That, that's yeah. pretty cool. Now you should be able to get at least one of these uh, two and three teams, two, two and three pairs. 
didn't. I feel like and okay, one of so the, the Alomars, the Alomars, right? R- Roberto and Sandy Alomar. Oh, they they were close. They were close. They're, they're not on it. Okay, no, not not, not in top three. Um, this, so I, I will say, I will say, one of the two is like um, in the NHL. How the two brothers have the most points is Wayne Gretzky and his brother, who has like twelve points. So it's something similar to that. Because I okay, so I'm trying to think. I I do know that. Because that's what I was, that was my next thought was I bet there's like some Hall of Famer who has a brother that played a little bit of baseball, you know, right, like yeah. made Major League Baseball, and then technically, you know, you combine them. Mm-hmm. Um, like, <laughs> so uh, I'll, I, I'll, I'll go okay. ahead and just, and just say it for you. That's going to be Hank and Tommy Aaron, ah. three thousand nine hundred eighty-seven. Vast majority come from Hank, but hey, Tommy still chipped in. Yeah, I mean, can't. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I think that that's almost a, we're doing a disservice to Tommy Aaron. It's it's so hard to become a major league baseball player. Oh, absolutely! And then it just so happens that your brother Henry Aaron the best of all is, time. <laughs> is the greatest hitter of all time. You know, like a, a top top two, and he's not yeah, two re- hitter in baseball. Re- uh, you know, like <laughs> remind me of the Gretzky brothers. Yeah, it's just and, it's, um, yeah. We we should do an episode on the younger brothers. Oh, <laughs> the, I'm, in, the, I'm the under, as as a underrated. younger child myself. I'm on board with this idea. And then uh, finally, to round up the top three, um, we okay, select. Is it, is it? Hold on. Is it like a triplet situation? Like this one is a triplet, but I just took the okay. best two. Okay. Okay. And, and it wasn't the it wasn't the Alus. No, it wasn't the Alus. They were still they were still close though. Okay. But with three thousand eight hundred ninety four, so just behind the Aaron brothers, you have Joe and Dom DiMaggio. Oh yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. They're both obviously pretty good because i was i was <laughs> that's one way to describe joe dimaggio is he was pretty, pretty good. good i guess because i was because I, I was thinking i was like i'm pretty sure dick allen had a brother but i couldn't no i, I think couldn't, you're right yeah 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 you know i okay so the dimaggios that that's really cool i i, I enjoyed that uh yeah. What do you? What do you? It's like a, almost like a palate cleanser at the end of a meal. That, that yeah, was, it was nice. Like here's how you know this guy died on the baseball diamond. But hey, here are Gosh. some brothers that were real good at hitting the ball. Yeah, I, I, and I think the uh, the or the Henry Aaron. Uh, that that's that's a really good like piece of bar trivia. I feel like mm-hmm. our listeners can. I, I don't know when that would really come up. In Who has the second most pair of really hits brothers? Yeah. yeah, that's a really random. <laughs> you know what? I, I don't get a, get out much. Apparently, this is what I think <laughs> people talk about is. Uh, all right. So that just about will run us up against our time. So uh, if you liked that uh, chaotic uh, cluster of an episode there at the end there. Um, <laughs> Got a little muddy you, there at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, if you liked what you heard, please uh, be sure to follow Short Hops and Tall Tales on Twitter at Short Hops PL. Uh, follow Brandon at BD Riddle and myself at Noah A. Scott 6. Uh, also, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you currently listen to podcasts. Uh, and if you're, you're vibing with it, as the kids say, leave a review. Do they uh, still say that? I say it. I, it's okay. like a, it's hey, like it a works. top works three said word for me (laughs) i talk like i'm 14 (laughs) it's the vibe all right uh so for brandon riddle i'm noah scott and this has been the short hops and tall tales podcast see you next time